Hey, uh, do me a favor, turn to Mark chapter 6, if you would, please. We got a lot of ground to cover tonight, so we need to get right at it. Um, there's really three stories at play here that close out the chapter, and they're typically looked at separately. And um, I don't want to do that tonight because I think that there are times that we can kind of lose something. We can go so kind of macro-focused on things that we miss maybe some of the things that are going on in the bigger picture. And I'm going to assume that most of us have studied these stories before, so, so I'm going to look at it from a little bigger picture and look at kind of a theme that's going through them rather than spending one message, if you will, on each one of them. Um, I think there's something that can be gained from that. When we were in Israel, we were in uh, Nazareth, and they had a little village set up with actors and everything that looked like, you know, Nazareth in Jesus' time. And, and we went from place to place, and they would have little things acted out, and they would say, and this is why Jesus said, you know, place your night on the nightstand, or your light on the lampstand, and just different things like that that were little analogies, or really it would have been modern, if you will, pictures that Jesus used at the time. And when we were there seeing them like one right after the other like that, as if we were going through a text all at once, it was amazing how it just, I don't know, it hit us in a really new and kind of fresh way. Um, that, now, don't read too much into that because I'm still going to take forever in the future on passages. I'm just warning you. But, but tonight, we're going to cover a lot of ground, so we should get going, right? Mark chapter 6, we're going to be starting in verse 14. And God, I just pray you would just bless me, Lord, with your spirit to be able to teach your word, Lord. I pray, God, that the things that that you have shown me, Lord, would be brought to remembrance, that you would guide everything that's done, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, that your sheep would be fed, your people would be edified, and that you, our God, would be glorified. So we thank you for this time together, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Mark chapter 6. Starting today in verse 14, Jeremy stopped in verse 13, if I'm not mistaken, last time he uh, pinch hit for me here. And um, he was telling the story about the apostles, Jesus sending the apostles out to do the work of the ministry. And you guys know this story, right? Jesus gets the guys together and uh, he kind of says, gives that little uh, pep talk to him, don't take a robe, don't take script, purse, all that stuff. Says, this is what you're going to do. And he sends them out to go do the work of the ministry. All of them, two by two. You guys all know this? Shake your head, humor me, we do, right? So they go and they're wildly successful, right? I mean, they're, they're wildly successful. They're casting out demons, the scriptures say. It says verse 13, they cast out many demons. They anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They were incredibly successful with what they did. They went out and they duplicated the ministry of Jesus. Now remember... This is work that is, the, the, the fame of what Jesus is doing is spreading all throughout the region. And people are coming from as far as 100 miles away to come and see him and to see what's being done and, and to be, you know, recipients, they hope, of the miracles that he's doing. And so these guys come in and it's no small thing to realize that they are duplicating the ministry of Jesus. If they're going out two by two, then that's six times as much as what was being done before. It's really significant. I know Jeremy sh- uh, shared with you guys about how uh, God works in the kingdom and spreads the kingdom and now uses the church, and that's all significant. But don't misunderstand the fact that these guys are incredibly successful as they go and do this. But we also know that we should be always very, very wary of success. Success can be really tricky to us. 
Um, we don't always navigate success. Historically, the church has done better in difficulty and persecution than it has in success. So we've got to be careful of that. Um, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 people. A different set, other followers, sends them out to do the same thing and the same results. They come back and they're like, Jesus, the demons are subject to us. They're obeying us. We're casting out demons. We're healing the sick. All of these kind of things. And Jesus has a stern warning for them, doesn't he? He says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. But nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He tells them, first of all, as we've spent some time on recently, that the only thing that we should really be rejoicing in is in the truth that Jesus has saved us and that our names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what we rejoice in, not power, authority, effective ministry, those things. We rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, It is... It is everything. Um, But he also gives a little warning there with regards to pride when he talks about Satan. He says, I saw Satan fall from from heaven like lightning. Uh, Success can be deceptive to us in two different ways. Um, One way, success can make us think it's about us. Um, The scriptures in Ezekiel, according to classical translation, um, say that, that Satan probably had something to do with worship and music in heaven. And worship and music and that kind of thing, it's a, it's a skill, it's a talent. When people are gifted at it, it's an area, Sam can tell you about this, he shared things with me with regards to this, that how deceptive things like that can be. And pride can seep in. Pride attacks all of our strengths, doesn't it? Make us think that we're all that, that it's all about us. And so Satan goes from a worshiper of Jesus to someone desiring worship. And in that pride, he descends and is kicked out of heaven. His, his pride causes his downfall. And so we need to understand that, that success in areas where we're gifted can lead to major downfalls. So we should be careful. Praise God that we're being successful, but we do not depend on that. We continue to worship in the gospel and we stay humble in that as well, right? So that's the first one. The second one is that success can cause really unrealistic expectations moving forward. Because we can start to think that we've got the formula figured out, that our skills are sharpened, we know what we're doing, and we're going to have success and good times from here on out. And that things are going to go well. We got this. It's going to be fine. And if God's in this, then it can't go badly for us, right? I'm I'm using God's gifts to do what God's called me to do, and I've been successful before, and we can start to think that things are just going to just smooth sailing from here on out. But any of us that have lived for any little period of time, we know that the good times don't always last, right? They just don't. I mean, in the good times, we should almost, some some of us, we've had enough experience in life that when things are going really good, we get nervous, right? Like, uh uh-oh, something's coming. Well, let's consider this from the apostles' perspective. Major success, casting out demons. These guys were fishermen, Now they're casting out demons. They're doing what even the priests in their day were not successfully doing. So how did it go for them after that? Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. So King Herod gets word of all this ministry going on. And Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. What? John the Baptist is dead. Just threw it in there. Some thought John the Baptist was raised from the dead. Wait, he's dead? We don't, 
we missed that part. That's not been in there yet. What are you talking about? John the Baptist is dead. What happened? Verse 14 continues. That is why these miracles, these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I, what? Beheaded has been raised. That sounds like a pretty major development that Mark just sort of skipped, right? You would think that would be big news. And he's just throwing it in. Oh, the guy that died. Sorry, forgot about that. Anyway, he might be alive again. That's what Herod thinks. What happened? Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Oh, Jerry Springer stuff right here is what we're talking about. Daytime soap opera stuff, okay? For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced... She pleased Herod. This is disgusting, right? This is totally Jerry Springer. We got incest and all kinds of stuff going on here. Now the daughter is coming in and dancing. She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Now we don't need to read between the lines too much, right? You guys know this isn't square dancing, right? This is not dancing with the stars. He's like, you're good. You deserve a prize. That's not what's going on here. This is teenage stripper type thing is what we're talking about. And this guy just says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Men can be stupid. (laughs) Oh, there's so much I could say, but my filter is blocking all of it right now. So we'll just move on. Verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She's a classy gal. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. Remember pride? So he doesn't want to look like, well, I'm going back on my word here and I can't even do this. This little girl's asking me this. Am I a man or what? So he's kind of in a pinch, and immediately, verse 27, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body. Man, this is an unbelievable and disgusting and horrific story. John the Baptist killed because a teenage girl dances seductively and a scorned mom who is in an incestuous relationship decides she has a grudge. And so John the Baptist dies. Now think about this for just a second. John the Baptist, John the Baptist, foretold about in Isaiah, known throughout the scriptures, forerunner of Jesus, 
dies because a teenage girl danced and mom was bitter. And that ends John the Baptist. Doesn't that seem ridiculous for a guy with that kind of importance in the kingdom of God that that's what ended him? And yet it is. That's what happened. Now think about this. Don't miss this, okay? What did Jesus say about John the Baptist? Jesus said of John the Baptist, I tell you, he says it in Matthew eleven eleven. among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Paraphrase, he's the best that's ever been born. That's big, right? This is what he says about John the Baptist. He's the best that's ever been born. That's what he says. Greatest disciple of all time. That's who John the Baptist is. And where was John the Baptist when Jesus made this comment about John the Baptist? Anyone remember? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Prison. He was in prison at the time. Okay, so think about it. Greatest disciple ever. In prison, Jesus says, greatest disciple ever. What does this say to us? Now, let me ask you this. Does that sound like a successful ministry? If you had a son... And he said, I'm going to go into the ministry, mom. And you knew in advance that he's going to go into the ministry. He's only going to be in it for a short time. He's going to be broke, homeless, dressed like a bum the entire time, living off of bugs, honey. He's going to be exiled, if you will, to the outside of the city. He's never going to make a prominent name for himself within civilization, if you will. And then right when it looks like his ministry might be finally starting to click, everyone's going to leave him to go follow another guy. And he's going to be okay with it. Then he's going to get arrested and beheaded all in a short little couple of year period of time. That's it. Would you want that for your son? Would you be like, that's, that's my boy? Probably not. It's not what we would define as a successful ministry. But here this tells us two things very, very clearly that we need to heed going forward in this text. The first one is this. Our present circumstances have no correlation between how God feels about us. If you're taking notes, you need to write that down. Our present circumstances have no correlation to how God feels about us. This is important to understand, okay? Because when things go bad, we can have a tendency to think that God's upset with us. Okay, something's going wrong. I'm doing something wrong. I've upset God. He's frustrated with me. I deserve this. Or maybe I'm not doing exactly what God asked me to do and I've gotten off track. And so I'm running into difficulty and hardship. And and it can be really difficult for us to, to navigate those kind of things. And we'll start to think that the situations around us sometimes reflect how God feels about us in a given moment. Honestly, has anybody ever felt that way at some point in their life? If you didn't raise your hand, it's just because you're lazy or something or you just don't get it yet. But it's true, right? I can remember my second born daughter. My, my second daughter was born. She was born and the cord was around her neck and they were doing all the, trying to get her breathing and it was like a panic moment there when she first came out. And I'm a pastor at the time. I should know better. But instantly I went into this, Lord, please don't take my sins out on her. This is because of me. And like, it was like a, a just memory of everything that I had ever done to dishonor God was going through my mind. And I'm like, this has got to be because of me. Don't take it out on her. Just like that, I went into that legalistic, God's upset with me. This is why this is happening. I was ashamed of it even afterwards, but I did. So how do we know then? If our circumstances around us don't dictate whether how God feels about us, how do we know? If I could make you memorize only one verse in all of the Bible, it would be Romans 5.8. 
For God has demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No matter what situation you're going through, no matter who's upset with you, no matter how great things are going, no matter how bad things are going, there is nothing that describes or determines or displays for you God's love for you any greater than that. Whether you're in good times, whether you're in bad times, how do you know that God loves you? Because while you were sinner, while you were at your worst, while you were, Romans will go on to say, an enemy with God, Christ died for you. No matter what's going on in your life, we never have need doubt how God feels about us. And that's what John the Baptist went through. He was in prison, the follower, the forerunner, if you will, of the one who Isaiah says was going to set the captives free. And so John the Baptist is in, fr- in prison going, is it you? Is it you or we, should we wait for another? And Jesus says, no one's been born better than that man. He's in prison, but God had given him his complete and total favor. So just remember that. You program that in your head. We have to discipline ourselves to preach the gospel to ourselves because most of us will default to legalism when things go down in our life, at least initially. And we've got to train ourselves to go, no, no matter what's going on in my life, I know God absolutely loves me. Why? Because when I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. I don't need any other example. Who could give a greater one than that? Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. That's a good one to memorize. It's important for us to know too, because again, we have a tendency to, especially when things are going down like that, to only look at God the just judge. And we picture God in that way. Grumpy, I, I, I call it kind of the Abraham Lincoln Memorial God. You ever seen that statue? You've been there? Abe's sitting up there in the big throne. It's all white and pearly looking around in there. And he's got that stern face and he's huge. And you're just tiny like in front of it. You know what I mean? That's how most people picture God. That's most people's idea. God's just looking down, just waiting for them to step out of line and wanting to stomp them because God is a just judge. And and here's sort of the bad news. God is a just judge and God does judge sin. But the good news is that God judged sin already in his son, Jesus Christ, not on you and I. Those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we've been removed from that. And so we don't have to sit here and only think about God the just judge. We get to think about God the adoptive father. Huge difference. Who wants to go camping with the just judge? What kid wants to go play catch with the just judge? You want to go with dad. You want to spend time with dad. You want to go camping with dad. And God says that for those who have believed in him, he has given the power to be called what? Sons of God. Don't let your mind go into that legalistic thing. When things go down and go into this, like I'm, I'm being judged. It's my sin that's put me into this situation. It, it may be consequentially, there may be consequences from your sin, but God delights in you. The scriptures tell us he delights in you. He is not frustrated with you. Do you believe that? Most of you probably know. So you got to start preaching that to yourself. He delights in you. He's the just judge, but he judged Christ and he said it is finished. And now we reap the rewards of that. And he's the adoptive father. We do not as Christians spend enough time understanding the doctrine of the adoption of God like we should. We should spend way more time on that. 
I think we'd be happier. And if we don't get that now, God bless you, if we don't get that now moving forward, I do genuinely worry you're going to have difficult seasons ahead uh, just sorting things out. So trust me, man, preach that to yourself. God delights in me. He loves me. He has given me his complete approval because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not because I'm all that, remember the pride part, but because Jesus Christ is good. Amen? That's good news. Amen? That's why we call it the gospel. You can write that down too. Now, so that's the first thing. This teaches us that our present circumstances are not necessarily correlated to how God feels about us. The second thing is this, that in following Jesus, our definition of success needs to be thrown out the window. Our understanding of what success is and isn't should be kicked out. Because John the Baptist, greatest disciple ever, he did everything it would seem right. He fulfilled his calling that God had called him to do. He ends up in jail and beheaded. This is important for us to understand. That I heard on the radio this morning. Do I want to say this? Why not? I heard on the radio this morning, Sirius XM Radio is about to open up the Joel Osteen channel. Um, if I'm about to offend you, I'm sorry, but you should hear this. The Joel Osteen channel is coming to Sirius XM Radio, and its tagline is, find, I wrote it down, discover your inner champion. Discover your inner champion. And, and here's some other quotes from our boy Joel Osteen. When you focus on being a blessing, God will always make sure that you are blessed in abundance. Here's another one. It's God's will for you to live in prosperity, not poverty. It's God's will for you to be able to pay bills and never be in debt. Here's another one. If we, these are book quotes. If, it's, if we say it long enough, eventually we will reap a harvest. We're going to get exactly what we say. Don't grow accustomed to living with less, doing less, or being less, because you'll eventually sit back and accept it. And when you come to a closed door, regard that as God nudging you in a better direction. I wonder what John the Baptist would have said if we had walked into prison and said, John, you know what the problem is? You're just saying the wrong thing, man. You need to just start imagining. Find your inner champion, and you will get yourself out of this prison. That is the prosperity gospel. You've heard me refer to it before. It's, that is what it is, is the prosperity gospel. And it is not the gospel. It's just not. It flies in the face of the teachings of Scripture, especially Jesus, who says, in this world, you will have what? Trouble. Trouble. I mean, imagine coming to John the Baptist and just saying, dude, the problem is you just don't have enough faith. He was exactly where God had ordained that he would be. And our understanding of success needs to be completely understood. And then consider this. Let's, let's just follow the story out here, considering our boys, the disciples here, okay? Here's the disciples, and they just crushed it, okay? MVP, all world, varsity, last time they were out. Demons, all this, just amazing success. And so what's the very next thing? After they were faithful to do exactly what God called them to do, Surely success and prosperity is what's all in their future from here on out. And the very next thing is, verse 29, when his disciples heard it, they came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. Now, I, don't miss the mindset here. What was John the Baptist? He was the what of Jesus Christ, the forerunner. He's the one who's going to, if you will, prepare the path that Jesus will walk. 
and it ends in what? Death. Does it sound familiar like the path we know now, knowing the end of the story? What's going to happen with Jesus, correct? Now, what's a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Jesus. So think their mindset. Beyond the fact that their friend, they just had to go get his body minus head and go and bury it somewhere. Now they're going to start thinking, okay, he's the forerunner. Jesus talks about difficult things, and he's going to talk about them a whole lot more. And if he's the forerunner, and we're the followers, then where does that leave them? And what does history tell us? They ended the same way, did they not? Only the apostle John was spared that sort of death, but he went through enough torture and imprisonment to to make sure he got his fair share. So here's these guys looking at, this is what happened to the forerunner, and we're following the guy that, if you will, would be following, if you will, the forerunner down this kind of path. What do you think their attitude would be that day? Do you think they came back? Oh, okay, that was a bummer, but today was amazing. The demons and all this kind of, no, I, I, you talk about wet blanket. You don't think those guys were afraid? We're next. Jesus speaks the truth. Jesus preaches boldly. John the Baptist spoke the truth, preached boldly. It got him killed. What's going to happen with us? And Herod is a bloodthirsty man. So what do you think they were feeling like? They were scared to death, exhausted, depressed. I mean, it is their friend, headless body, probably not a moving thing to do. And now that's what you figure out. What's that going to look like? What's their mindset going to be? And then verse 30, it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And so they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. A good shepherd knows when his sheep need rest and need a break. I mean, what does the Psalm 23 say? He leadeth me beside still water. He maketh me to lie down in green pasture. He restoreth my soul. So here they come back. These guys are freaking out. Guarantee it. Depressed, sad, tired, long day of ministry just had to bury their friend. They're afraid that they're going to be next. Jesus' popularity is growing and growing and growing. What's going to happen? And Jesus sees them and he can just see it in their eyes. And he says to them, guys, you need a break. You need a break. Let's hop in the boat and we're going to go over here and get away for just a little while. So I I have some slides from you because we were here just about two weeks ago. This is the Sea of Galilee. Eh, They don't turn out real well, do they? This is the Sea of Galilee. We, were, we got to take a boat ride and just spend some time worshiping out in the middle of the lake. It was awesome. It was a fantastic time. And that hill right there in the background is traditionally referred to as the place where Jesus did what we're all about to see. So I want you guys to be able to see the mental picture. Big grassy hill. This is where they're going to go. Jesus sees the guys. He's like, guys, let's hop in the boat. Let's go over here. We're going to take a little break. They actually have a thing there that's called, in this museum, it's called the Jesus Boat. 
they actually discovered, preserved the remains of a boat that actually existed in the time of Jesus. So this would have been the same kind of boat. All those metal things, that's, it, it wasn't that. Just hold it right there, guys. This right here is just sort of the frame, if you will, that's just keeping all the wood from falling apart because it's, it is 2,000 years old. So um, this is about the size of the boat that you're talking about. It's maybe 15, 16 feet long, something like that. Um, come to the next picture. One more. This is essentially what it would have looked like when it was brand new. One mast, tiny little boat, and the Sea of Galilee is massive. It's huge. Gigantic lake, mountains all the way around it. Even when we were there, we were there in the afternoon and the wind started picking up that afternoon. You could feel it come in and we were there on a very, very pleasant day. But when a storm comes around, you know, a little boat like that, that's not much to be out on the lake. But Jesus, these guys are fishermen. They know this stuff really well. Jesus is like, hey, guys, you guys need a break. So we're going to hop in the boat and we're going to cruise over here away from everybody where we can get some rest. So come to the next slide. I think it's the, the mountains again. There's our picture. This is where they're going, okay? So the guys get in the boat. They're probably feeling really good about this. Good. We need to process this. There's a lot going on. So they start to head their way across. And that's great. But the break didn't last very long. Verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So they're going to take a break. Like we're just going to get away, process this, rest. We need it. And as they're cruising along in the boat, they're looking over to the shore and they start seeing people literally running along the shoreline where they're going. This is just a small little distance that they would have traveled on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And they're following, you know, the disciples are like, oh, I'd kill for a motor right now. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is not work. And, and now Jesus has them angling the boat to shore and the crowd's starting to build. And guys, it's not a small crowd. It's a massive crowd of people. And what's interesting is that we know already from the scriptures we've already studied that the people are there because they only want from Jesus the miracles, right? I don't want to give away too much, but there's going to be some fishes and bread involved here in just a second. And so they're, they're, they're wanting from Jesus. And Jesus knows this. But he doesn't get there and say, guys, hold on. You're only here because you want something from me and my guys need a break, so get out of here. Instead, he looks at them with their misled motives and everything and it says he had compassion because they don't have a shepherd. Yeah, they want the wrong things, but you know what? They're sheep without a shepherd. They need to be helped. They need to be taught. And while I can totally relate to the disciples on this, can you guys... I mean, can't, wouldn't you be frustrated? Let's be honest. Um, but, but I'm really gracious. I'm really thankful that God, in all the different times in my life where maybe I have served or participated in some form of Christianity or our faith, maybe for not the purest motives every single time, that God has had mercy on me. That he hasn't rejected and kicked me to the curb, aren't you? So he has compassion on him. And he uses it as an opportunity to, to try to teach them. But the disciples, they're, they're brainstorming. How can we get out of this? Verse 35, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus, there's a lot of people here and they're hungry. 
<laughs> like he's thinking about them, right? Um, they're hungry. And we should probably, for their best interest, send them away so they can get home and get some food. But who's their, who are they really thinking about in this moment? They're thinking about themselves. And do we blame them? Absolutely not. Is that just me? Do we blame them? Okay, just don't leave me hanging like that, man. Start thinking I'm a heathen. So, uh, anyway. <laughs> so, let's just send them away, let them get something to eat. And Jesus said to them, verse 37, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. So you think of their up and down emotions here. Oh, we're going to get a break. Oh, no, there's all these people. Oh, we don't have food and it's late. I got an idea. We'll send them home. Jesus, we should send them home. You feed them. Oh, we only have two fish and five loaves. They're like, oh, we've almost there. It's like a kid negotiating with mom and dad to try to get out of something, right? But Jesus isn't fooled. He says, verse 39, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Boy, there would be a nice parallel there in verse 39, sitting down on the green grass with that Psalm 23, but I should have thought of that earlier. Verse 40, so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing, broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. Now, there's a common theory that's out there in a lot of places now that this wasn't a miracle. There are people that say, well, what happened was, is a lot of people had lunches, but they were just sort of hiding them, and nobody knew. And they found this one guy and got his, and so Jesus taught them to share. And once Jesus started sharing the little bit he had, other people were like, oh, we can do this too. And it was like it started a movement, and that's how everybody got fed. Four Gospels all tell this story. It's the only miracle apart from the crucifixion and resurrection that's in all four of the Gospels. And all four of them make it really clear this is an absolute miracle. And we're okay with that, right? He created heaven and earth. He can probably make lunch, right? So this is what's going on here. This is an absolute miracle that's going on here. Now I want you to notice two things. They all sat down, they, they all ate and were satisfied, verse 43, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Two things. Number one, the number of baskets left over of food is not an accident. These are bushels. It's not just a little basket. It's, it's, it's big bushel, tons of food, infinitely more food in one basket than they even had to start with. And they have how many baskets? Twelve. That is not a coincidence. Twelve is not just it so happened to be twelve. How many disciples are there? How many baskets are there? Do we need to do the math? It's not a coincidence. Here's these disciples. What about us? They're thinking about themselves. We need a break. We need rest. We need food. We don't even have enough food to feed all 12 of us. And now you want us to feed all of them. But as they give the little bit that they had to Jesus and they do what Jesus called them to do, they were more than satisfied. 12 baskets left over. 12 disciples. 
What do you think this is showing us? It's showing us point two. I'm glad you asked. The point of the miracle is that Jesus Christ is to be our all-satisfying king. And this is why things like prosperity theology are so off-base. Prosperity theology treats Jesus as a means to an end. If you follow the scriptures, you'll get this. If you have faith in him, you'll get that. If you have enough faith, you'll be this. You'll achieve this. Jesus is the end. He's the means to the end and he's the end. The thing that we should desire more than anything in this world is not food or money or provision or wealth or comfort. It is Jesus. And I know that's really difficult for us to process here because we have infinite minds. We have mortal bodies. We see things and lust kicks in and we want things. But I assure you on the day that you see Jesus Christ, you will think so little of everything else that has ever existed before. He should be the object of our desire. May God train our desires to want him more than anything else. So that when we go through difficult, it doesn't matter, we have him. We don't have money, it doesn't matter, I have him. What more do I need? I have him. You get God. I mean, imagine that. Imagine that. Who could want more than that? Jesus is to be our all satisfying. And this is the teachings of Scripture. He says, is anyone hungry? I'm the bread of life. Anyone who eats of this bread will never hunger again. It's about me. Are you thirsty? Then come to me, rivers of living water. You will never thirst again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's all about him. He is the means and the end. And to treat Jesus and to treat faith as a way to get to other things, that's not Christianity, that's idolatry. Because now we want things more than Jesus, and we're going to use Jesus to get things. Shame on us for that. May we, and, we, and we all have been guilty of it from time to time. We all need repentance. In no way do I mean to look down my nose on anyone because I'm as guilty as anyone has ever been in those things. But the scriptures make it clear, Jesus Christ is to be our all-satisfying king. And if we lose everything else but we have him, we are remarkably wealthy. Remarkably, remarkably wealthy. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the eyes of his glory and grace. It's an amazing thing. Okay, but now let's be honest. Great message, Jeff. Jesus is everything. I'm with you, I believe you. But when it comes down to the brass tacks, when we're in it, how easy is that? Like if you're going through a storm in your life, if you're going through a difficult thing in your life, you're going through a dry season, a tragedy, depression, illness, whatever those things may be. Jeff, that's great teaching. Problem is I'm right in the middle of it and just coming alongside and saying, Jeff, or Steve, Bill, whoever you are, just just turn your eyes upon Jesus. I don't understand that in the moment. I can't see the forest for the trees. What does that even mean to me in the middle of the storm? You're talking to me about turning my eyes upon Jesus. All I see are clouds, man, and giant waves. I don't know what else to do in this moment. Please tell me you're not coming in with a greeting card slogan and telling me that's going to fix everything. What do I do? 
I don't know. I think if we were all completely and totally honest, we would say that while we believe this, living this is a completely different thing. And it's one thing to know it now. It's another thing to remember it when we need it the most in that moment. Some of us, maybe by the grace of God, have gotten to a place in our walk with God that that kicks in faster than others. But most of us, when tragedy comes, we, we fight the current for a little while and flail around in the water just to try to keep from drowning. That's most of us, right? So what do we do? What do we do when we're in the middle of that? What do we tell others when they're in the middle of that? This is why I love this passage in the book of Mark. This is my favorite account of this because it's got some of the best news in the world. Because it says, so 5,000 men were fed. Immediately then, verse 45, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And so he does have mercy. He's, he's getting the guys, okay, I'll get the guys out of here. You need a break. Here's all your food. Load up in the boat. I'll meet you over there. And after a while, he had taken leave of them. He went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is a beautiful story. Because these guys just saw Jesus doing all these miracles. They just before that did the miracles. And now they're in the boat, but Jesus is on the shore. And they're going across and the storm kicks up and they are convinced that they're going to die. You saw that little boat? They're convinced they're going to die. I don't know if you've ever been in the lake before or been out on the water when the waves are kicking and you don't think you're getting out of it. It is not a happy place. These guys are sailors and they're convinced. They're fishermen. This is their thing, but they are convinced that they're going to die. So imagine we pull up alongside that boat in our own little skiff. Peter, turn your eyes upon Jesus, man. You'll be fine. And leave. Right? Hey, give it to Jesus. You'll be fine. All things together for good. And we just throw those Christianese sayings out and just bolt. I think Peter would punch us or pull a sword out, go for the ears. I don't know, something like that. What do you say to them? And if you've been in this before, you understand. Like, what do you do? You say, turn my eyes upon Jesus. I don't see him. I'm in the boat. Here's the rest of us. He stayed on the shore. Turn my eyes, look to him. I can't even see him. All I see are waves, clouds, storm, danger, and I'm probably about to die. Thanks for the advice. Turn my eyes upon Jesus. But here's the best news in the world in verse 48. Three massive words. Do you see them? Look at verse 48. Three massive words. And he saw. Who saw? Answer me. Who saw? He saw. Was it about them? You need enough faith and then you're going to get through this. They were convinced they were going to die. 
convinced they were going to die. Their faith at that moment, if we could put a rating to it, zero. (laughs) Zero faith. We're going to die. Are you going to make it to the other side? No chance. But he saw them. Just imagine him. He's sitting on that hill. And he knows the storm's coming. He knows where he's sending them to go. And he's there praying. For who? Probably them. The guys who just went through a really difficult day. The guys who are really tired. The guys who are really afraid. The guys whose friend just died. And he's watching the boat go. And he saw them. Man, isn't that great news? Because I don't know. When you're in the middle of stuff, you get a cancer diagnosis. What do you do in that moment? I know all the theological answers to that. But in that very moment, how long does it take us to land on that? A few hours? Days? Weeks? Years? So what happens in the time in between? I don't know. But he saw. He was watching. All those times where we go, I don't know. I don't know how to put my eyes upon him. I don't know how to look to Jesus. I don't, know, I don't have the faith. I'm struggling right now. So you know what I'll do? I'll just stop right in the middle of the storm. I'll plop down in the middle of the boat, bust open my Bibles, and we'll just have some devotions right now. That'll fix it, right? Who does that? But Jesus saw them. You should circle that and underline that and reference that and dog ear the page and highlight and on your refrigerator. He sees. You don't have the answers. You don't know how it's going to get out. He sees. And you got to know this. He cares. How do we know he cares? He died for us. When we were sinners, he died for us. He sees what we're going through. He cares about what we're going through. And he will walk on water if he has to, to guarantee that we get to the place that he intends us to arrive at. He will make sure we get there. Now, our success definitions may be different. We may think we're headed for something, and it may be eternity that we fall into his arms, but I guarantee you, you will not complain about that arrangement. But he sees and he cares. How how to explain it in the meantime, I don't know. That's the difficult part. I know we're out of time, but I got to tell you this story. I've told some of you guys this before. When my daughter was, I don't know, five, four, five, somewhere in there, And she had to get some immunization shots. And my wife blessed me by allowing me to be the one to go to the doctor for her to get her immunization shots. So I get to be the bad guy. She gets to come home to mommy. Great. So we go. We go to the doctor's office. And I had never even been to that particular office. They just moved to a new place. And so I'm getting her signed in. And I've never done the paperwork before. Bronwyn always does that. That's what moms do, right? So I'm just trying to figure all this out. And I've got the insurance cards. And I don't even know what all these group numbers and all that. I'm I'm just a dad trying to figure things out probably should be wearing a helmet so I'm doing all this in the room over here where the kids go and play and there's all the toys that have all the germs on the wall there's a chalkboard all the way around it's that chalkboard wallpaper stuff right and she's already over there playing and I'm trying to do all this stuff and I'm filling out paperwork and asking questions and she's asking questions about birth history or uh, medical history that I don't know and I'm just really distracted and I feel this yank And it's my daughter, and I'm like, hold on, hold on. And she yanks again. Honey, hold on. And then she finally yanks, and I'm like, hang on, I was like, what what is it, honey? What do you want? And she points to the chalkboard. And I don't know if this is going to show up, but will you guys show that next slide? This is what she wrote. Five-year-old girl. 
I am scared of getting a shot. That's what she wrote on the chalkboard. She had little tears in her eyes. She'd gone to the chalkboard and wrote that down. So of course, like a pastor and a good father, I said, you need to give it to Jesus and here's how immunizations work. What you need to understand is, yes, this is going to hurt, but this is going to prevent you from, and here's why vaccinations work. I don't even know how vaccinations work. I think it's actually the disease they're putting in you, and somehow that keeps you from getting disease. Makes no sense to me. I think it's voodoo. But anyway, all this is going, oh, by the way, that does not mean I'm against vaccines. That's a hot topic today. Sorry about that. But I don't even understand this stuff. And here's my little girl scared to death, and she is absolutely about to feel pain. What do I do? I can hold her and I can love her and the pain's going to be there, but, but I can be there to throw an arm around her and make sure you are going to get home safe. It is going to help you. You are going to get better. And I can just, I can't explain it to you in that moment. I can't explain why this is going to hurt and why you have to go through this thing because you wouldn't even understand it anyway, but you got to trust me. This is for your good, but I will be here. And guys, that is the heart of our Father for us when we go through difficult times. We don't always understand why. Why am I going through this thing? I I don't know. When is it going to end? I don't know. How are we going to get through this? I don't know. Why would God do such a thing? I don't know. But I know this. He is good. And I know that he is there. And I know that he is watching. But I don't feel him. You don't need to. He's watching you. He is with you. And he will get you where you need to go. There's a famous passage we all know really well in Isaiah. The, the mount up on wings as eagles. We all know that one. That's been in a lot of the bumper stickers and the, the greeting cards and stuff, right? But do you realize that the backstory for that is for a nation that is going through incredible difficulty and their belief is God has completely bailed on us and our help is gone and we are on our own. And it is to that that the prophet Isaiah says, Jacob, why do you say, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by God? In other words, why are you saying God doesn't care? God's not here. I'm on my own. Why are you saying that, Israel? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow weary His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall fail and be weary, young men shall fall and be exhausted, but they who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. That's written to the person that is convinced God has forgotten them. So maybe this is a word for you tonight. Maybe you're going through something and God's reminding you, I'm watching and I'll get you where you need to be. You hang in there. But why? I don't know. When? I don't know. But you hang in there. Those who wait on the Lord, you just hang in there. Or maybe you know someone right now who's going through stuff and they need these, they need these words. Give them to them. That's what disciples do. We minister the gospel of the grace and hope of Jesus Christ to those that are in need. I guarantee you all of us fall in one of those two categories. May God's word work through us to that end. Amen. Will you stand and let's pray.